When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, and welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott. And I'm Ben. As always, we are joined by the legendary super producer, uh, Noel, the, uh, what's the name of that turn? How about the Flying Merkel? <laughs> Noel, the Flying Merkel Brown, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and... This is uh, this is a show that we're going to start off, as you said, off the air with a question. Yeah, I've got a question for you. Who, right. Are you one to attend um, amusement parks? You ever go to an amusement park? You know, I haven't in a while, but yeah, I'm I'm a fan of. When you do go there, and I don't know if this hits you the same way, but yeah. I've been to a lot of amusement parks mm-hmm. over the decades, and uh, whenever I go and I, I see all the rides that are there, the the uh, you know whatever this. Ferris wheels and the and all those kids rides and stuff, but sure. the, the ones that really impress me are these enormous wooden roller coasters. The, the structures that are just so complex. When you look at it, you just can't even believe that humans have created something like oh, that. It's, it's man. incredible. I know what you're talking about too. And uh, there's one in, or there was one. I don't know if it's still here in Six Flags over Georgia, which is uh, a U.S. amusement park just outside of Atlanta, and they had a vehicle called the American Scream Machine. Yeah. A roller coaster, rather. And the thing is, you can hear it creak, and you can hear the give, which the engineers designed as part of it. But do you have time for a quick story? Oh, of course I do. All right. That roller coaster, I swear to you, man, I almost flew out of it as a kid. Mm -hmm. uh, Because, I don't think we've told this story on air, but because once when I was a, a wee young tyke, uh, my parents met up with uh, one of their friends of the family, and she had two kids. So these three pe- these three adults and the- took their three kids to the amusement park, and we all had to sit in this roller coaster. I'm not going to give the name because this might be an unflattering thing, but many years have passed. And because of the way this coaster was constructed, you know, they're like seats of two, uh, two rows, two seats each for each car. Because of just the luck of the draw, I ended up sitting uh, in the same row uh, with the family friend who was much uh, larger and rounder. Uh, robust. Very yeah. robust mm-hmm. individual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, because of this, the bar that, that pops down <laughs> and, and holds yeah. your torso down I can had, picture this completely. had a lot of empty space yeah. between, me and, at the, uh, between me and the bar. And at this time, as a kid... I was still kind of frightened of roller coasters. I was I was pretty young. And we went on this one. I was convinced. I was told it would be fine because there were no uh, loops. It's just a series of very uh, steep, you know, rises and falls. Oh, sure. How scary could it be? Right. Well, I don't know how it is if you're in the car for the entire ride. <laughs> but when we hit the first and do the physics of those kind of roller coasters, the hill's going to be the first or the biggest one is going to be the first one. And the rest are going to be a little bit smaller. Sure. And so and all those weightless times in between. Right. Yeah. Zero right. gravity. Yeah. And so we hit that first thing. We start going down and my body goes up and up. And my I, you know, history, of course, makes you exaggerate things. So I used to think it was like down to 
my ankles holding the bar. But <laughs> there's no way I could have done that without hitting my face as yeah. soon as we hit the bottom. Yeah. But so like my thighs went up. I went up. This poor lady was sitting next to me, screamed and like grabbed me and pulled me back or mm-hmm. tried to. And I thought, oh, crap. And I realized they weren't going to stop the ride. And there were like five more hills. And so she just had to like grab me. And each time I almost flew out of that stupid car. Yeah. All to say, I perhaps have a subjective bias against these wooden <laughs> roller coasters because, you know, some people think they're death machines. I think they're feats of engineering. But, you know, how fast should a vehicle go on wood. Ah, that's a good question. Now, you know, that that's something that uh I we'll, we'll touch on that today. We'll we'll touch on the speed aspect of this whole yeah. thing. And and today's episode is not about roller coasters. No, no. But I, but I wanted to bring in the roller coasters because w- here's the, here's a comparison I was thinking is is that you know, you're at the, at the amusement park and you're standing staring at this enormous structure. This uh, this overly complex looking thing that someone yeah. has engineered and put together and um it's it's executed quite well, you know, that it, it works Ooh. perfectly. Um, it's scary, it's loose, it's fast, it's everything that you want it to be, right? right? In a roller coaster. But, um, you look at it and you think, like, there's just, how, how do they even imagine something like this out of wood? You would think that, like, that'd have to be a more permanent material. Sure. But, but then you realize, well, back in the day, you know, that was what they used. They just simply used wood to create a lot of different things. Mm. And this goes for racetracks as well. Now, and the reason I'm, I'm talking about roller coasters here is that, some of these tracks, you know, the coasters are enormous, but mm-hmm. some of these race tracks that we're going to talk about today, they weren't just tiny little, uh, you know, little tracks the size of like your local dirt track. Oh, no, no. Which these replaced, by the way, for some period of time. Mm-hmm. These tracks, some of them went two miles in length and some of them had just very, very steep banking, which we're also going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Just can you imagine a two mile track that's made entirely out of wood. The whole surface is made out of wood and the supporting structure all around it, the right. grant, the grandstands, everything. These had to have been incredibly impressive to see in person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when we talk about steep, just to give you a sense of how steep they were, uh, it, the grade is a little less than maybe a funnel that you would use, you know, to pour oil in. Yeah, well, you know what? We're going to talk about banking when we get to it, because yeah. I've got some comparisons that I think are going to be real eye-openers when we get right. to it. But um, So, Ben, before we get too far into this, I think we need uh, – there's a few things we need to explain here. And yeah. uh, the, the predecessor to what we're going to talk about today were uh, velodromes. And, of course, velodromes have been around uh, – there were European velodromes mm-hmm. dating back to the mid to late 19th century in the United mm-hmm. Kingdom. Yeah. They, were, they were kind of – well, actually really all over Europe uh, for bicycle racing, of course, at that time. And they had very shallow banking in the corners, but they did have bank turns. Right. And these were, some were exclusively for cycling. Some were uh, also built around athletic tracks or other stuff, right? And, yeah. And the surface of the track was either made of cinder or shale, or later they made them out of concrete and asphalt and then later yeah. tarmac as well. And those were the outdoor ones. Right. There were indoor velodromes uh, that appeared maybe in the, let's say, the late 19th century or the early 20th century that were made out of wood. And mm. that is critical in the development of this whole thing. So yes. wooden tracks indoors in Europe which were for bicycles only, but then motorcycles came around. And motorcycles came around around, uh, let's say, let's ballpark this in the 1860s. All right. And we're talking about steam-powered velocipedes. And these were <laughs> yeah. these are not the ones that were racing by any means, but they looked a lot like the penny-farthing bikes, you know, the, the uh-huh. huge front wheel and the tiny rear wheel, but they were steam-powered. So you can imagine how efficient those were <laughs> yeah. and not really a, a racing what machine. What could go wrong? Yeah, and then, then they came up with something called velocycles, and uh, they were kind of like a three-wheel design. But those were petrol-powered, and that's important to note mm-hmm. because that's two years before uh, the Benz patent wagon uh, mm-hmm. came around, the first car, really, right. the first recognized car in 1886. So, the, the, you know, 1884 is when these velocycles emerged, so just prior to cars. And then about uh, 10 years later, let's say, uh, they came out with, like, the first um, series production, well, they called it a motorcycle at that point. So 1894 is really the first motorcycle or the first uh, vehicle to be called a motorcycle that looked like a motorcycle, if you right, put it that right, way. Right. Um, basically the first commercial product, really, the one that you could go out and buy um, at your local dealer. And I think that Hildebrand and Wolf, uh, Wolf Mueller was the first motorcycle, and then it just kind of spread from there. You can and, you can find yeah. examples of these everywhere. Really. And people love motorcycles. And uh, yeah, but the thing is, they weren't really all that fast. They were just a way to get around, and it was a, you know, I don't want to say it was a... Uh, um, 
Oh, not a not a novelty item or anything, but it was different, and it was uh, not for everybody, of course. Sure, um, yeah. people are still using horses and carriages and uh, yeah, things like and that. But it's expensive to maintain that yeah, kind of thing. But but by about 1910, so maybe 15 years later into this whole thing, or even maybe 25 years into this whole thing, depends on where you want to start. Motorcycles started to get really fast. People started mm-hmm. to realize that you know, let's cut some of the weight on these. Let's make the wheels pneumatic tires, and yeah. uh, you know, let's let's up the horsepower. We're going to put a little bit bigger engine in this thing. Um, it, just a lot of developments that made motorcycles um, a, a racing option, and people were doing that. They were racing them on dirt roads out in mm-hmm. the country. Um, they were racing them, you know, of course, where they probably shouldn't be, you know, in, in town and of things course. like that. But um, there really were very few track options at that time, if any, for motorcycles. And, I mean, let's be honest, even in 1910, there weren't a lot of car racing tracks e- either. Right. I mean, the cars were using horse racing tracks. That's a very good point. You know, uh, dirt tracks. So, um, anyways, this is where we're, we're kind of starting from here. Yeah. Right around 1910, um, and, and this is a critical time in this history. Oh, yes, because in 1910, in a place called Pla del Rey, California, the very first U.S. Uh, board track venue is built, and it's called the Los Angeles Motor Drome. Uh, it is opened in 1910, and sure, it's used for auto racing, but more importantly for the purposes of our show, it's used for motorcycle competition. This was like... If you can imagine the velodrome that Scott described earlier, this was like a version of that on steroids. It was it was bigger, it was badder, it more importantly had steeper banks. Yeah, steeper banks for sure. They uh they started with uh, but you know what? Here's the thing about this mm-hmm. one. The banking on this one is about 20 degrees. Okay. Now that's that's pretty steep, really. Yeah, well, I mean, it's steeper than the really shallow banks of the velodrome. Uh, should we just get this out of the way right now? Yeah. I think I think we will. Let's yeah, talk yeah. about banking because we're we're leading up to this, and I, I don't want to miss it by okay. any means. So, all right, so twenty degrees of banking on this one mile track, right? And this is the very first one again, the Los Angeles Motordrome. And and please take a look online for photos of this thing. You're, you're not going to believe it. It's amazing. Um, so this is the very first board track, again, one mile in length, 20-degree banking. All wood. All wood. Just to give you a, a comparison, an idea of comparison, that's that's not reasonable banking, I guess. Sure. It's not very steep. If you want to look at modern NASCAR tracks, NASCAR competition, which a lot of people can uh, you know reference in their in their head. Yeah, can, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've seen a wreck on Daytona International Speedway, and it, let's say that the wreck ends up where you know the cars slide up to the top of the wall and somehow remain stuck up there. Mm-hmm. The rescue teams often have trouble getting up to that wreck because they can't walk on that surface. And the, the track at, the, at that uh, in the corners is about 31 degrees of banking in the corners at Daytona International Speedway. And the straights, uh, which aren't even flat in, in Daytona, they're, they're 18 degrees at the start-finish line. So um, there's always some degree of banking at Daytona. And that's not even the steepest in the whole series. Talladega is the steepest in the series at 33 degrees. Wow. So that gives you an idea. And, again, watch the, the, the crews attempt to climb those banks, and you'll understand how steep 33 degrees is and 31 degrees. You'll, right. You'll get it. So this motordrome, the first one, again, is 20 degrees uh, twenty degrees of banking. But as we progress through the decades that this is a, this is a, uh, a real thing, a sport, you know, for the next 20 years or so, the banking gets steeper and steeper and steeper. It goes to 30 degrees, 40 degrees, 50 degrees, and then eventually, by the time they they built the St. Louis Motordrome, it was a uh, it was a quarter mile track. It had 62 degrees in banking. So uh, that's that's unbelievable. I mean, you, you almost have to look it up to understand what that means. But right. uh, you know, look at the wall next to you. That's 90 degrees. Yeah, it's not that far off from there. It's Pretty much a lazy wall. Yeah, it really. I is. guess the best way to say is a dangerous. And wall. and uh, adding to this, okay, so man, yeah. there's so much I have to get to on this, yeah, on this yeah, podcast, yeah. but that requires a lot of speed in order to maintain yeah, in your position on the track at mm-hmm. at 62 degrees. Um, oh, you know, here's another example. You know, a lot of people have seen um, the Ken Block uh, version where he was at the. He's in Paris, I think. Okay. Um, at one of his Gymkhana videos, oh, and he okay. does some crazy, you know, stunts on these uh, on these high bank turns. The uh, um, it's not a velodrome. I can't remember the name of the the place right now, the venue, but I've got mm. it written down. Maybe I'll find it today oh, at some right. point. 
that banking is something like 51 degrees. So that's that'll it? give it, yeah, that's it. Yeah. And again, oh, he can, wow. you know, stand and lean. It looks like it's a, it's an optical illusion when he's leaning on his car. It's, it's incredible. And this does rely on physics because we've covered in earlier episodes that you may have checked out longtime listeners, uh, some of the motorcycle stunts that you might see in traveling circuses and stuff like that where they get locked into that ball of death and they have to, uh, the, the drivers have to begin at their low speed with small circles that spiral out and get bigger and bigger and bigger so that they can rely on the speed to give them downforce, essentially. You know, we've also done an episode on the wall of death. And yeah. the wall of death is still something that is traveling. Uh, there's somebody that has, I think, the, the trademark on the name of that. But uh, there are several acts that travel around, and they set up this wall of death where they have, you know, a small, like a midget race car. Yeah. They have motorcycles, of course, and they all have their own little twist on, on what makes it interesting. But... Those are uh, again same thing. You spiral around on the small track below, and then and then at a certain speed, you're allowed to climb up onto that 90 degree surface. This is not that far off from that. And these were again enormous tracks that range from quarter, you know, like quarter or third mile tracks, right. all the way up to two miles in length. Now, the, the big two mile ones, I don't think the banking was quite as steep. I mean, it might have gone up to 50 degrees, but it wasn't 62 degrees. Right. This and, smaller track, this yeah. was like a quarter mile track, I think. And I think uh, when I was reading this. You know, just for uh, just for reference, I guess um, they were saying that lap times at these smaller tracks sometimes lap times would be like eight seconds. That's how fast these guys are going around these tracks. Wow. Yeah, super quick. Um, so ninety plus miles an hour at some point, but early in early on in this in the nineteen tens or ni- around nineteen ten, yeah, um, speeds were closer to let's say sixty or sixty five miles an hour, and that was going insanely fast for them. At you know, like the motordrome. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Right, and there's another thing we should mention here. When we're talking about racing, we're not talking about time trials or something. Not only, and you'll see how insanely dangerous this was in a little bit later in the show, but not only were these people in very dangerous conditions, but they were also in very dangerous conditions 
maybe inches away from a, a competitor. Yeah, that's true. And uh, man, there's so many safety aspects to this whole thing. Sure. Let's, let's can we talk about the bikes just for one moment? Yeah, let's because, talk about the bikes. So, so let's start out with bikes, and then eventually automobiles will will enter the scene as well. But uh, the bike brands that were there were Indian and Cyclone and Pope and yeah. Flying Merkel. That's uh, and there's Knowles nickname. <laughs> um, Norton. There was Harley Davidson, of course. Excelsior. There's a, just a bunch of these old style motorcycles that look a lot like bicycles, of course, you know, with, right. with engines attached, but um, really, really cool-looking machines. And here's the thing that I didn't know about these bikes, Ben. I, I, I figured it was just a regular motorcycle you could, like you'd find on the street, but maybe, you know, a little faster, a little, a little sleeker, sure. you know, yeah. a little built for speed. These bikes, I didn't realize this, they don't have any suspension at all. No, no, no travel. No. It's, like, it's like a bicycle in that way. However, there's also no clutch. There's no throttle. There's right. no there's no brakes. And it's, the oil just sprays out behind. Oh yeah, that's right. It is a um oh, what do they it's call a it? Total a, loss design. That's right, total loss. Yeah, I couldn't think of the name of it, but the uh, lubrication system is designed to completely empty itself during the race. So there's another factor into the danger of this because those those boards that they're racing on, the wooden boards, which yeah. were uh, really just two by fours, sometimes on the on their edge. Yeah. Uh, but mainly just two by fours. Yeah, just flat two by fours. Those were completely soaked with oil all the time and bits of rubber and, you know, uh-huh. whatever else embedded itself in there. And of course they would splinter. Uh, there would be holes. There would be timbers that would be completely knocked loose from the track surface. But, Often in the course of, you know, a single race. Yeah. So, you know, these things with, you know, no clutch, no throttle, no brakes. It was just, you either had, it was like full go and then off. And that's the yeah. only speeds. And you could, of course, coast to a stop. But I guess the, uh, the thought process there is that, you have to be full throttle on, otherwise you're not going to stick to the walls. The other thing is, of course, you want it to be full throttle, so you, it's all engine tuning and uh, you know making sure that you got the right mixtures and all that. You know, so it's it's competitive in that way. Yeah. But it's full throttle on or off with a kill switch, and that was your only options. Right. And right. and okay. And I said we needed to talk about safety. Okay. This is this is important. So. Over the uh, over the decades, because it started again around 1910, and I think the final track was uh, used for, or the the end of competition was somewhere in the early 30s, right? Yeah, like 1931, right? Yeah, 1931. So it's the, um, I, I guess, the onset of the Great Depression here in the United mm-hmm. States. That's when it that's when it kind of killed this whole thing off. But um, over those decades, there were hundreds of these tracks that sprung up all over the place. Not all of them were. Um, you know, AAA national championship tracks, which you can find lists of, you know, where they sure. were and how big yeah. they were and, um, you know, th- when they were active and all that, um, on- online. You can find those easily, but some of the smaller tracks are, are you know, the lesser known tracks. You're going to rely on, you know, going to people's photo books in small towns and looking through what they've got because it really, the memories are all that exist at this point. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. Th- a lot of them were destroyed by weather or just by time, the ravage of time because they required a lot of maintenance. Um, as we mentioned, what? You know, no way. <laughs> yeah. Lots of <laughs> lots of maintenance, and it was expensive. They were initially cheaper to build. Right. Yeah. Just the material was initially cheaper, but it's like uh, when you buy a car that might have a lower sticker price, you have to factor in the cost of ownership. And the problem was that the, at least in the case of the Los Angeles Motor Dome, that it took about three million feet of lumber and sixteen tons of nails to construct what you know they called the pie pan which was the track that's unbelievable okay so that that was the uh, that was the motor drum right yeah 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 okay so that is a uh, that's a 1 mile track Mm-hmm. But you're talking about the entire thing. It took about three million board feet of lumber to build the whole thing. Right. I've got, tons of I've got a number here just for the track surface because once you build the track, you know, once you get that in place, and I think the ballpark estimate of the price on this track or, or other tracks similar, uh, you could just give it a round number of five hundred thousand dollars back then. Yeah, back then in, in 1910. So the 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 number that I have is for the track surface only, and. I think they said for a one-mile track, it took about one million board feet of brand-new lumber, and a complete set of boards were needed every five years or so. So, you know, along the way, you're replacing individual boards here and there, but then there's a point where they realize, like, this whole thing has got to be redone, and that's about five years into uh, competition, and you know, because of, uh, you know, just wear and tear and, you know, the oil soaking and all that stuff. So every five years, they had to be resurfaced, and, and... the cost of a million board feet of new lumber back in 1910 or 1915, I think, was about $125,000. And today, in today's dollars, got that one? Yeah. $3 million. Holy so sucks. every five years, you're going to invest $3 million in the surface of that track. 
um, in an equivalent of $3 million. Uh-huh. So it got to be very expensive and, and tough to keep keep up. And then, of course, along the way, there's also going to be other stuff that uh, happens because, uh, boy, we still haven't talked about safety, but um, – the uh, you know the railings are going to get knocked down. Right. The stands are going to have you know there's going to be broken grandstands. Mm-hmm. Wood's just going to wear uh, you know because Do of the elements. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, you know how it works. I mean, if you have out wood outside, it's going to rot away. And they didn't really have uh, the preserving um, chemicals that we have now, so mm-hmm. it wasn't lasting quite as long. I mean, just imagine putting a raw piece of wood out in your yard and see how long that lasts. Yeah. And, and, and let your neighbors know yeah. <laughs> that we told you to do that. Yeah, yeah, sure. We'll take, we'll take the, <laughs> we'll take heat the for that. Heat. Yeah, right. Uh, so here's a way for us to change tracks a little bit toward uh, the safety aspects. So these things, during their heyday, as their ascendancy rose, uh, they were drawing in massive crowds. This type of racing is one of the most popular forms of racing in U.S. history. We're talking about 80,000 people in Chicago. In Tacoma, which was a relatively small town at the time, um, it had a, a population of 83,000 people in 1910, and 35,000 turned out to see a race. Holy cow. So that's a pretty big draw. Right. It means like uh, one in every three people in the whole town, and more than that, one in every right. three people was attending that race. And, of course, there are people coming from out of town. Well, sure. sure, that too. But, I mean, it's a big deal for a small town like that. It's mm-hmm. a relatively small town. But crowds of 90,000 people? I mean, that's so, yeah. that's, that's ballpark what they were getting at, like, the Indianapolis 500 in the in the, the early days. Yeah, so that, was, that number uh, was from Chicago in 1915. And here's the thing, Scott. This race in Chicago happened three weeks after the Indy 500, and 60,000 people attended that. Yeah. So for a time, just for, you know, that's a tricky that's a tricky measurement because it, it may have just been that one time, but it was pop, more popular than Indy. Well, it could have been, yeah. And you know what? There's, an, there's another interesting tie-in here. Man, we're not going to get to safety, are we? We're totally going right, to so, get there. I promise. Right. Well, actually, you know what? This is maybe a good lead-in because we talked about how dangerous this is. And, yeah. and over the decades, I don't know if we've even mentioned this or not, Ben, but over the decades, this sport uh, cost the lives of hundreds of individuals, yes. um, hundreds, hundreds in, in maybe a 20 year time span because it had it earned the dubious moniker. People started calling them not uh, motor drones, but murder drones. Yeah, that was uh, I'm sure it's for, you know, sell newspapers, probably, sure. you know, the, uh, the 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 damning headlines. But and there's one accident in particular that we'll talk about that 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 touches on that. But. Ben, I'm glad you mentioned the Indy 500 because there's an interesting tie-in, an interesting and, and deadly tie-in with Indy 500 winners in board track racing. Oh, do tell. Yeah, so this is, uh, this is I guess we're getting into car racing as well, you know, not just motorcycle racing, but it's yeah. kind of a mix mm-hmm. um, throughout the whole time. Uh, driver fatalities were, were growing in the 1920s, and in fact, four Indianapolis 500 winners died Doing board track racing. So the, the people that had won the Indianapolis 500 at some point, uh, they, they perished in board track racing. It was that deadly. It's a yeah. difficult race to, to, to compete in. Um, three of these winners uh, that were killed also uh, competed in the Indianapolis 500 that same year. So and I think in one case it was just a matter of uh, you know months later. So there was Howdy Wilcox who died. Uh, he had won the uh, 1919 Indy 500, and he died um, on a race in September of that same year. And then there was a, a co-winner in 1924 named Joe Boyer, and then the 1929 winner, Ray Keach, um, all suffered fatalities in the same year um, as they w- as they won the Indy 500. And then later, um, just I guess it was only 17 days after he won the Indy 500, um, Gaston Chevrolet, who was uh, you know brother of Louis Chevrolet, the, uh, the founder of the Chevrolet motor, yeah. well, the brand, really. Um, he died in uh, nineteen. Uh, let's see, he died in June of nineteen twenty-nine. So that was just, uh, like I said, just a few days after winning the Indy five hundred. You know, from the top of the world, top of the heap, uh, to dying on a board track. And the horrific thing about this is that the accidents were not unusual. You know, a lot, a lot. Um, Sadly enough, a lot seemed to occur in August as we record this. Yeah, and you know, and it included spectators too. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. That's it's probably why it claims so many lives because um, you know the design of the track. And you know, we mentioned the banking, 
Right. And that, you know, the 62 degrees and the, even the 50 degree tracks, the 45 degree tracks. And not much protection for the grandstands. Yeah. All. So there's, uh, they build a wooden rail that's mm-hmm. held, you know, a two by four rail. Right. That's also held up with other two by fours. And really that's the only thing separating these guys going 95 miles an hour on a track on a motorcycle with the crowd. And of course they're on that oil slick track and, and, when you crash in something like this, there's a good chance that that bike is going to go up and out of the track and the, and the rider, and that's what happened often. And, of course, there's light poles all around as well for evening right. races, and those got knocked over. And uh, there were there were numerous fires that claimed lives, but uh, oftentimes, you know, the bikes would end up spinning into the crowd and killing many, many people in one shot. Right. And I've it's got, terrible. I've got one example here. Uh, so in July 19... 19- 13, July 20th, this is the kind of accident that you had just mentioned, Scott. Mm-hmm. There was um, a board track in Ludlow, Kentucky, right? Uh, a racer named Odin Johnson crashed, and when he crashed, his motorcycle hit a light pole, and the motorcycle's gas tank exploded. An exposed electrical wire from the light pole sparked the fuel and spread the flames into the crowd. So the ultimate death toll was uh, eight people. And that was uh, the Salt Lake Telegram reported. Yeah, and then after that accident, of course, you know, uh, Johnson, of course, perished in the, the accident, mm-hmm. accident as well. So I don't know if it was a total of nine or eight total, but um, Johnson's widow then vowed that she was going to spend the rest of her life, you know, making sure that uh, these board tracks were banned. But didn't take too long after that before, uh, you know, they, they finally were banned, at least from motorcycle competition, which we can talk about maybe later. Do you want to talk about it now, maybe? Sure, yeah. All right, so by 1913, uh, they had already decided that, uh, these were kind of a bad, bad thing for the sport. I mean, they said, yeah. you know, we, maybe we should just go back to dirt track racing like we had before. And by 1913, there was already a move to kind of push it in that way. And that's following the death of a very famous rider who was only 19 when he died. Uh, the guy's name was, um, uh, Eddie Hasha, which was the, he called it, he went by the Texas Cyclone. That was his mm-hmm. name. So, you know, early, early on, he's a young guy. He's already got this nick- nickname, Tex- the Texas Cyclone. What a cool name. Yeah. Uh, but on September 8th of 1912, he was killed at a, uh, uh, a motorhome near Atlantic City. I think the town was something called like, uh, Nutley, I think is it? It's like two hours away. Okay. Um, but uh, in that accident, uh, four spectators were also killed, and then ten more were injured. And uh, of course, they made the front page news of the New York Times, and they started. That's when they started calling these, you know, the shorter tracks, the quarter mile and the one third mile circuits, the the murder drums. Mm-hmm. So the murder drum term comes from this very accident. It started with that, and that's early on. That's 1912. And remember the um, uh, the. Las Vegas, or not Las Vegas, the Los Angeles Motodrome opened yeah. in, what, 1910? Yeah. So that's only two years later, and they're already getting this nickname. And these are going to hang on for another 20 years after this. So Yeah, and the place, that op- the place where the Texas Cyclones accident occurred had only opened that same year, yeah. in July. Yeah, and, and they it, shut down afterwards. It had already claimed so many lives of, yeah. of, of uh, riders and spectators as well. And they just realized this is just a, a super dangerous sport. We, we can't really, you know, uh, sanction this type of so thing So that's here. when the smaller ones began to close. Well, they started to. And, and by 1913, the motorcycle championship races were moved to a dirt track because dirt was considered a safer surface at that time. So they it's a different type of racing, sure, but yeah. uh, they moved it to a dirt track. And, and the organization that oversaw motorcycle racing eventually banned all, ma- all um, competitions on board tracks shorter than one mile in length by 1919. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet and also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, 
those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And then another problem that beset the place, I just want to enter this as a side note so we can remember it when it comes up, because it'll come up several times. Uh, When you look at the history here, another unfortunate occurrence that would uh, befall motor drones is that they would catch on fire. Yeah, that's true. And of course, what are you going to do? I mean, it's untreated lumber. um, the, The bikes are spewing. Uh, oil. Yeah, that's true. The track is oil soaked. The, uh, there's gasoline, of course. There's electricity there. Yeah. Uh, the crowd, which is probably going to panic and try to get out. I mean, if, even if it's a small track, let's say there's 5,000 people there. I think there's one account of, you know, there was panic when, uh, you know, fire happened in one place and they said it took an hour to get 5,000 people out of one of these motor drums. That's how long it took. And, and imagine if the whole place was engulfed. I think they yeah. had that one under control. I, I know spectators perished in that one, but, not as many as it could have you know, could have happened, um, but imagine a, a huge speedway that's got ninety thousand people, and right. the whole and the whole thing's connected, of course, you know, with the structure underneath. Mm-hmm. All of that could catch fire, um, and I know that you know they were able to isolate you know the fires and and keep some of that to a minimum. But yeah. um, there were just some horrific, horrific things that happened during this era, and and. You know, there's cars that enter the scene as well. Now, imagine if a motorcycle flies off into the crowd. That's that's awful enough, right? Yes. If a car flies off into the crowd, it's gonna the damage becomes exponentially more, or uh, more serious, I guess, mm-hmm. because um, you know just the size of it and the the weight and the you know it's just, uh, unbelievable what these crowds went through to watch these races. I mean, it, it was like taking your life into your own hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's quite literally what it was. We cannot overemphasize how popular these things were. And Scott, you and I were talking off air earlier about, you know, the, I, I guess the best way to say it would be the nature of morbidity, how no one admits that they slow down at accidents, but statistically most drivers do and yeah. not because of traffic, but because of rubbernecking. Yeah. Now, of course, ladies and gentlemen, drivers and shotgun passengers alike, and shout out to you in the back seat if you're listening in the car. Uh, <laughs> you're so inclusive. We're, we're try. I'm, I'm not trying to say in any way that the majority of these fans were there for that kind of um, that kind of shot and Freud. I'm, I'm saying that statistically, it's likely there was a contingent because something about something about the possibility of that draws people. Yeah, so, um, but it's also the, the greatest competition that they're going to see, you know, that, um, right. This is still a world of horse carriages. Exactly. And, and this is, this is going to be really, really interesting. It's going to be like the, the only show in town probably on the weekends. So, you know, why, why not go to something like this? It's the, you know, the choice is either that or, uh, hang out on the front porch and watch the traffic go by. Yeah. It's, I mean, what kind of traffic, too? Oh, well, early cars, I guess, right? Well, hopefully. There might be a few in your town. Yeah, if you're maybe. in a big city, there are probably several. Probably. And, you know, these were in big towns everywhere. It seems like most yeah. of the major towns here in the United States had a motor drone of some kind. And you'll find no traces of them today, practically. Um, maybe some satellite photos that indicate, you know, where they were at one time. But that's mm-hmm. about it. Because the wood structures, they're just gone. And we have some uh, side notes we want to get to on this. Because oh, yeah. we had no... I, I don't know about you, man, but I had... 
I had no idea how prominent this was in American culture. Yeah, and you know, of course, for motorcycles at first, then auto racing, and, yeah. and then it, for a time, a mix of both. You know, there'd be mm-hmm. you know, cars and cycles racing at the same time, not not together, but I mean, um, you know, on the same weekend, maybe. Uh, so here's a couple of side note things that, and I'll just throw these out there and see where we go with the discussion. But it's kind of like the wrap up of the whole thing, really. So. One thing that I stumbled across as we were, we were reading about this is, of course, you know, track maintenance and, you know, how difficult it was to maintain these as, uh, you know, the, the vehicles were really rough on the surface and mm-hmm. very difficult on, on the track surface. So one thing I found is that during the last decade of board track r- racing, carpenters would sometimes repair the tracks from below while the race was happening above. So, like, a, a timber gets shaken loose. What? They climb underneath the structure, you know, because you can imagine these are elevated. You know, they've got a, a heavy wooden structure below. They would repair and, you know, reinsert boards from beneath when they were missing because timbers would sometimes go missing, and they'd have to get out there and, and take care of it during the race. Incredible, isn't it? That, that, Insane. Imagine, yeah, because, you know, we're talking about the end of the, the era, and speeds are above 100 miles per hour. You know, they're 120 miles per hour in some cases. And there's a carpenter underneath there trying to slip a board into place, into position. And I don't know what that really entails. I don't know if it was like a, you know, a tongue and groove type situation or, you know, what was really involved in replacing one. If there was uh, hardware involved or right. what. Or, or the extent of the time it would take yeah. to install one. Which, I don't know. See, everything that we're learning about this is that each each lap becomes progressively more dangerous because the track is getting damaged, it's getting soaked in oil. The drivers are probably eventually going to encounter fatigue because let us not forget uh, that the LA Motordrome did do a 24-hour endurance run. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, they were. Um, they did uh, their first 24-hour endurance race in 1911. Wow. And in May of the same year, Texas Cyclones set a new record there when he hit 95 miles an hour. Oh, so there's, okay, he built his name there then. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And, and so this was still, uh, you know, they had some autos in there. But whether it's a 24-hour endurance with a, a car or a motorcycle, that that is, that's something that should not have happened. I hate to be, you know... A Debbie Downer, I guess maybe a bummer Ben would be more appropriate. <laughs> I like it. But that's that's the kind of thing where it's a danger to the people in the stands, the people in the the people in the vehicles, and now come to find, because I did not know that, the carpenters beneath the track. Yeah. It's like everybody's in danger. Every oh, every single person there is in danger. But it's interesting. Okay, so here's another one, Ben. Yeah. There was a guy named Jack Prince. I don't know if you read about Jack Prince or not, but this was the guy who traveled the country enthusiastically selling board tracks to all kinds of driving groups and municipalities on the way. Uh-huh. So this is the guy that goes into town and he gives, like, the big presentation, you know, kind of like the uh, the monorail salesman on The Simpsons. Oh, right? yeah, monorail. And then, yeah, exactly. And you've got the whole thing laid out, you know, like what it's going to look like, a model and everything, you know, and, and tells them the cost. It's $500,000, and, you know, the townspeople say, no, no way, I don't want that. And then... Uh, as he's walking away, he probably said something like, uh, well, I guess this is more of a Shelbyville kind of idea. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's got to be something like that. But this guy, he sold a lot of tracks. And, of course, you know, the the, the benefit to a lot of these small towns was that it, it kept their labor labor force working. Kept labor force working, also provided a huge boost to the economy because surrounding towns would all hear about maybe the big race on Saturday and then Boom, you know, well, local restaurants sold out. People are sleeping at the at the motor lodge. Yeah, and it's something that they can, you know, keep going for years and years and years, you know, aside from the construction. And, uh, you know, of course, when it's happening, when the construction's happening, it's going to take several months to complete with lots of labor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's going to be the biggest construction project probably in, in the entire state when it's happening. Uh, so it's going to be a big draw for, for this town. It's going to put it on the map, really. So even yeah. if it's a smaller town... It's gonna, it's gonna, um, they're gonna profit from it if they can come up with the money ahead of time. But this Jack Prince guy, he's the one who went around and sold a lot of uh, these tracks, and he worked with a guy named Art Pillsbury. And ah, very Pillsbury, important yeah. name. Now this is a guy who designed tracks, and he would design a track, um, he or he did design a track in Beverly Hills, California, with a a different type of turn. Now prior to this, they were just kind of, well, I, I guess not winging it. They were engineered. All along, but, um, you know, so that they were a smooth transition because right. I think some of the early ones were a little rough. They said, you know, you go from the straight into a bank turn like that, and it was almost like you're hitting a wall. You know, they're very, very steep, and, and you mm-hmm. almost smack into it. So 
Pillsbury started engineering these tracks in a different way, and he created something called the Cyril Spiral Easement Curve. And it was designed for improved handling and speed, of course, but it would load the cars up with uh, with Gs, or the, the motorcycles with Gs. G-force, yeah. Yeah, G-force. So uh, riders would experience up to two Gs at 100 miles an hour on these tracks. And the reason that these were so effective or so um, uh, so important for the, the design of, of you know the tracks going forward is that they created, um, oh, I don't know how to, how to best say this. You can call it the track transition curve, maybe. And yeah. I'll try to describe this. It's that if you were going at a certain speed at a certain line, the, the corner takes over the steering of the vehicle for you. It, you can let go of the wheel, and the car will make it completely through the turn, and you're back onto the straight again. Right. And that's due to the um, – you're right. It's a trans, It's that track transition, essentially. Yeah, with no steering input from the driver – the car will make the turn completely. And again, it's because of that banking, because of the design of the, the, the curve. It's, uh, I mean, it's engineered perfectly so that it would work that way. And I've, I've heard tales of, um, you know, of course, there are uh, manufacturer test tracks that have turns like this. Right. Uh, this exact same turn that was designed by Art Pillsbury. And there are, you know, this is something that happened in uh, railroads as well. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's, uh, that's part of why they can, uh, you know, Make the turns that they do and hang on the track, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And a much smaller scale. I mean, a smaller. I mean, uh, less banking. No, no, it's true. They were racing uh, full size <laughs> locomotives on these tracks. All right, point taken. Point taken. <laughs> no, I'm but, kidding. But, but, I mean, no, you're right. You're so, right. So it's a it's a it's a method to keep the uh, keep the vehicle on track, or you know. Um, uh, I guess pointed in the right direction at may, all times. It may well have saved lives. Uh, I would say that it probably did. But again, the first one to use that was in. Uh, Beverly Hills, California. And that was, again, an Art Pillsbury track. All right, so another couple of quick things here before we wrap up, and I know there's going to be more that I'll find when we're done. But uh, there's a guy that wrote a book called Wall Smacker, and this leads to the the other more interesting part of this. But um, I have not read Wall Smacker. That might be the best book I've ever read, but uh, I'll find out soon because I think I'm going to pick this one up. Yeah, cool. Um, but it's by former driver Peter DePaulo. And he was a car driver, not a motorcycle driver, but this guy happens to be the nephew of Ralph De Palma. And Ralph Ooh. De Palma is a famous race car driver. Yeah. And I'll tell you about Ralph in just a moment, but uh, this book, Wall Smacker, is all about Peter De Paulo's, um, you know, time as a, as a board track racer back in the, you know, right in the heyday of this whole thing. So mm-hmm. he's got some great tales and, you know, he talks about, uh, you know, the great sensations of dodging holes and flying timbers and, you know, the splinters in the face and all that stuff. Because these guys would get just horrific injuries sometimes from uh, the wood surface, you know, when they would wreck. Yeah. And, uh, oh, you know, one thing we haven't even talked about in what? safety was that the steep uh, the, the steep banking sometimes meant that if a rider fell off his bike, he was likely to be struck by his own vehicle uh, as he... F- right, as it fell without... Yeah, they would yeah. fall, you know, 15, 20 feet to the bottom of the track, and then the bike would come down and hit them. It was like just a double whammy, I guess. And, and of course, the bike traveling across the traffic uh, would sometimes take out other riders. In fact, one of the cases that we mentioned, I think, uh, I don't remember if it was the Hasher wreck or not, but uh, it, his bike took out another rider and eventually killed him. Uh, so the, the steep corners, you know, all played into that whole thing. And uh, this guy, so he's Peter DePaulo. He is the nephew of Ralph De Palma, as I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. and now, De Palma, he's an interesting cat, and I, I think he may be someone that we could talk about in a full podcast someday. Oh, yeah, for um, sure. Time he was racing was uh, the early 1900s up until, I think he, he made an appearance like as a track official at, at Indy in the 1950s, but that was it. And I think the guy lived until like the mid-1970s or some, somewhere in there. But he was racing right again in the board track era, and he was also, um, he was a car racer, he was a motorcycle racer, mm-hmm. a little bit of both. He's probably better known for his auto racing. And of course, he's he was the eventual winner of the Indy 500 in 1915. He held world speed records in a Packard on Daytona Beach, Ben Packard. Yeah, on the beach, on the sand, he I had mean, a he had an on life. he had an on the sand record of something like 150 miles an hour on the really? sand in Daytona. Yeah, in 1919, I believe it was. Um, he's a member of several Hall of Fames. Uh, just an all-around good guy because everybody liked him. They said he was a good sport on and off the track. He would take uh, responsibility if he caused an accident. He would say it, you know, wasn't the other driver's fault. Mm-hmm. Um, he would do things like I think before one race, uh, a young boy was starting his race car and it was a hand crank car, and the car, the engine kicked back and broke the boy's arm right before the race. Now, so then the guy uh, De Palma went on to win that race, and they said that instead of taking the podium, you know, and accepting the cup for the for the victory. He went to the hospital and sat by the boy's bedside 
you know, with, with him as he was, uh, you know, being bandaged up. What a good he, person. He was. Man. He's a good guy. And they said there's just countless tales of him like that. So he's a really good guy. And uh, what he's probably most famously known for, and we'll wrap it up on this, I guess, maybe, hmm. is that he famously lost the Indy 500 in 1912. But what came from this was that uh, a lot of photos came from this, really, that, that are famous photos of he and his riding mechanic pushing his car across the finish line in order to collect the uh, you know the the winnings from that race. Even though he finished 11th, his car gave out on him after he had led something like 196 laps of the Indy 500. Uh-huh. On lap 198, with just two laps to go, his his car conks out of him. It's a Mercedes. I think he had a cracked piston or something. Um, he and his mechanic had to get out and push the car across the finish line in order to finish the race and collect the money that they were they were due. But the crowd the crowd was like ninety thousand at, at this point, and the crowd was cheering louder for them pushing the car across the line in eleventh place than they were for the winner of the race, who was <laughs> almost forgotten to history now. Not not really, but al- almost compared to what had happened there. And there's famous photos of him and his uh, his riding mechanic. The guy's name was Rupert Jeffkins, and this car was like like you know. 2,500 pound car, something. It's an enormous racing Mercedes that they're pushing across the line on, yeah. the, on the bricks. And so this guy is also, let's see, he, he was still winning awards. He got, uh, he, his, one of his most recent awards was in 2006. Yeah. Well, oh, well, posthumously. Yeah. Of course. Of course. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Posthumously. So, so 40 years after, he's still winning awards. Well, right. And, you know, Ben, the, here's the last little bit on, the, on De Palma here. And this yeah. is, oh, this is a bit gruesome, though. And I think we should do this. It, the same year that he, uh, he famously lost the 500, the, you know, 1912 race, uh, the series went on to Milwaukee next. And, um, I don't know where that falls in the series now, if it's still the same way or not, but they went on to Milwaukee. And this will give you an idea of the, the era here. Yeah. So, he goes off track, you know, the, uh, the, the car goes off track because of an incident, and the car flips over, and he's out in the middle of a cornfield when it flips over. That's, that's how, the, the, the early days of racing, wow. I guess, it wasn't surrounded completely yeah. by grandstands. So, he's flipped over, and he's in a cornfield, and when he flipped over in his car, of course, he's, he's thrown out because, you know, he doesn't have a seatbelt, there's no seatbelts, and, you know, the, that leather cap, he's impaled on two corn stalks in that cornfield, and they kept him out of racing for, 11 weeks while he's in the hospital being, you know, bandaged up for this thing. Jeez. Can you imagine being in a race car? You're, you're, one minute you're racing in Milwaukee, you know, on the racetrack. The next uh, minute you're impaled on two corn stalks out in some field somewhere. He probably doesn't even remember it, but, um, man, an 11 week recovery and what a horrific injury too. I mean, that, mm-hmm. that's, that could have ended his life right there, but he went on Easily. to, uh, one, went on to race, you know, a long time after that. In fact, he, you know, Won some big ones after that, mm-hmm. uh, but man, what? There's story after story after story like that in this series. You'll find um, a lot of really interesting characters, and I think in that book Wall Smacker, which I am definitely going to pick up and read, mm-hmm. um, I think you're going to find you know uh, hints, I guess, at other interesting people like that that uh, maybe we can dig into on this podcast. And the world of board track racing, like the old T.S. Eliot poem, ended not with a bang but with a whimper. As one by one. Now, Scott, as you said earlier, national organization overseeing uh, bike racing banned all the board tracks shorter than one mile, 1919. Yeah. And this continued on until about 31, as we said. But the entire time, one by one, manufacturers were slowly withdrawing their support because no one wants to be known as, you know, uh, as the the automaker behind the mo- or the bike maker behind the most successful death machines yeah. in America. Yeah, that's true. And you know, I guess the timing is just uh it worked out so that, you know, as the manufacturers pulled out of the competition, out of the series, and the racers and you know, the racers were probably still wanting to compete because it was big money back then. I think some of the purses were, you know, in the $25,000 range at the yeah. time. And that was, you know, ballpark you want to put that into today's perspective, that's like five hundred or six hundred thousand dollars that could be won on a weekend back in nineteen ten or nineteen fifteen. Mm-hmm. That's huge. That was a huge draw for for the racers. That's why they did it. And right. Of course, you know the thrill. Of course, and they were you know um, they were they were well aware of the risk, but also yeah. also there's one thing I don't think we mentioned, which is important uh, for anybody who's a fan of the race. So as the speeds increased uh, in this was something that that goes along with my earlier statement that each lap was more dangerous than the last. As the speeds increase, it became more and more difficult to overtake other vehicles. Mm. So the fastest car would almost always win the race, you know, as long as 
it kept on the track. Well, that's the thing. They said, you know, of course, there's, uh, you know, the quality issues because the cars didn't always make it to the end of the race or the bikes didn't always make it. Uh, you know, there's a mechanical failure. Right. Or, you know, uh, of course, an accident. You either, either crash out or your bike would fail you. Right. So the fastest one, like you said, very little passing uh, yeah. in the, in the later days. Um, and, and honestly, would you really even attempt passing in something like this? I mean, it's like, well, my bike's just not quite as fast. I'm not going to really pull any kind of crazy move. I'm just going to stay in it. I'm going to try to win the prize money for third place. Right. And be Imagine. happy with that and walk away with my life from this one. Maybe next weekend I'll push it a little Imagine more. Imagine by the second lap knowing what place everybody's going to be in. As a racer, that's going to be completely irritating. As a spectator, you know, maybe maybe people eventually got tired of that too well maybe i guess uh, i it, you doubt know, it uh, yeah i don't know it's it's tough to say because you know because you're you're thinking that well there's going to be either human error there's going to be um you know mechanical fa- failures we said so there are things that can change that but you're right once uh, after you get into two laps and you settle into the racing groove you kind of knew who's going to win that eight lap race so now i've got a question for you my friend oh boy i think i know uh, what is oh i'm just gonna i'll ask an uh, easy one okay are you for it or again oh, oh okay that's not what I thought. You thought I was going to ask if you would do it? Yeah, exactly. No yeah, way. No, uh, <laughs> you have to be out of your mind to do something like this. But uh, people still do this today. There's a, there, there are vintage leagues that do it. But I don't think it's quite as competitive, quite as uh, um, cutthroat as it was back then. Mm-hmm. Um, spectators aren't killed normally at the, at the historic events. Um, yeah, I guess, Ben, I'm going to have to say that I am for it. I think that it, it, it helped, the, uh, helped the series grow. You know, it helped, mm-hmm. uh, you know, motorcycle racing gain popularity and auto racing, of course. Uh, but would I be for bringing it back today, uh, you know, in the form that it was then? No way. There's, there's just no, there's no need to do that. We've got yeah. much safer, um, much, much safer tracks now. Yeah. I think, I think that's a really good point. And the technology, both in terms of track construction and material science, as well as auto engineering is, Far, far beyond what we have. I mean, we're looking at life a century later. Yeah. And it's, it's weird to think about it in those terms. But what that means, in a fortunate way, is we can, we can have exciting races where it can still be any driver's game and everyone can walk away after. Oh, yeah. Don't get me wrong. I would, I would love to see. Uh, a board racing track that that you know where people are really competing where they're 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 in true competition but yeah. much safer than what it was back then because you can't you can't be losing a, a rider every weekend and and 10, ten spectators uh that that just can't happen now i mean it, it shouldn't have happened then i understand why it happened because it, there's just there was no other way around it they, you know they they didn't have a better you know the the safer barriers they didn't have right. um you know the uh i guess the the thought that maybe the crowd shouldn't be Perched over top of the railing as they're, you know, the riders are going 95 miles an hour just feet away from them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a different world, really. It was a, it was a, it was a danger and everybody knew it when they went there. You, you took that risk. But, uh, but then again, like, you know, you hear incidents where, you know, a four year old or four or five year old was killed because a, a motorcycle hit him in the head because the kid was curious and had his head sticking through the rail. I will admit, despite the at times gruesome history, uh, that if I were if I were the same age now or if I were a kid back in that time, I would have done anything to go see this. You know what I mean? Because these are amazing machines and the chance to see one up close performing at its utmost ability is uh, a fairly profound oh, sure. opportunity. Biggest show in town. Biggest show in town. Yeah, at the hands of professionals, too. You know, I mean, it's, it's the, the top writers that you're reading about in the newspapers every week. Yeah, would, and you can still you can find a lot of information about board track racing both online, in print, and their their photographs. Well, there's even film of these, and, yeah. and man, does it look exciting! And oh man, I would love to be able to go and see a two mile track made out of wood. How cool would that be? Yeah, it's just something that just doesn't exist. It's, it's just not anywhere right now. Smaller velodromes, sure, and they're they're impressive, but mm. nothing like that. Except no substitutions, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and speaking of shows, I think this is going to uh, draw our show to a close uh, before we hit uh, too hard on the banks of this podcast. Uh, the podcast studio, of course, as longtime listeners know, uh, is composed of a series of tracks and banks. 
We have lost a few good people on them. Not, I don't mean that they died in any way. I mean they got lost. <laughs> and with uh, and with this, uh, we would like to point you in the direction of carstuffshow.com, where if you haven't checked out yet, you can listen to many more of our motorcycle and racing-related episodes. We have stuff about the history of the evolution of the motorcycle. We have stuff about some of the greatest moments in racing and some of the strangest races across the planet. Uh, let us know what you think about board track racing as well. Were you one of the people who had access to photographs of this from someone in your family, maybe? Or have you been to the old sites? Yeah, the, uh, the like the long gone tracks, you know, the ones yeah. that uh, were knocked down in a tornado or a hurricane or a fire or something like that. But uh, you know, there's just no other record of them other than, again, in, in you know, small town scrapbooks. Yeah, exactly. And so that's where some of them live. And if you have them, feel free to send them in and we'll share them uh, with the fellow listeners out there. Uh, and also, if you happen to be on Twitter or Facebook, you can check out a lot of cool car stories that for one reason or another may not make it to the air, uh, such as one guy I'd actually like to do a story on in the future. Uh, I'll just say the word, spoiler alert, Graham. Oh, yes. Yeah, we might check that out. Uh, you can find these kind of behind-the-scenes looks on our Facebook and Twitter where we are CarStuffHSW. And... If you have a story about board track racing, if you have a suggestion for a topic we could cover in the future, you can write to us directly. We are carstuff at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at Viking.com. You've probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately. Well, Toyota has electrified options for every lifestyle. We've got hybrids. No plug needed. But we also have plug-in hybrids, if that's your thing. (laughs) You can even go 100% electric in the Toyota BZ4X. With so many options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. 